Lesson 3. The Basis for Believing the Christian Gospel of the Kingdom. Master Texts. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That was from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Another quotation, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good news, who heralds peace, brings happiness, proclaims salvation, and tells Zion, your God is king. That's from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Another quotation, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in other cities also, that's the reason for which I was sent. Those are the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. From the recorded ministry of Jesus Christ, we have seen that his evangelistic activity centered upon a public proclamation. The announcement that the kingdom of God was to be inaugurated on earth and that men and women should respond to this good news of the kingdom by believing the message and changing their minds and their lives accordingly. That's in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. In this way, they would be ready to enter the kingdom of God when it arrived with the second coming of Jesus. We are still waiting for the coming of that kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea, a Christian disciple, was waiting for it after the ministry of Jesus on earth was complete. You find that in chapter 15 and verse 43 of Mark's Gospel. Joseph of Arimathea did not imagine that the kingdom had already come. We maintain that since this was the gospel message always presented by Jesus, it is by definition the Christian gospel. No wonder then that the early church required its prospective candidates for baptism to believe in Quote, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, and compare with that verse, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Jesus has not changed, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, nor has his gospel message of the kingdom, which continues to demand an urgent response from all who hear it. All Christians, if they are to be involved in the work of God, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, should be active in some capacity as teachers and supporters of the kingdom of God gospel as Jesus taught it. See, for example, Luke 8, verse 3. They should be co-workers for the kingdom, as Paul said in Colossians 4, verse 11 but they should take plenty of time to prepare before they teach it publicly. The gospel can be talked about in many different situations. The important thing is that the message is spread. Luke 9 verse 60, Matthew 5 verse 5 says, Blessed 
are the meek, for they will inherit the earth or the kingdom of God, is a good place to start. Converts should be encouraged to give up their talk of going to heaven or when I get to heaven or so-and-so has gone to a better place and so on and start following the language of Jesus about entering and inheriting the kingdom when Jesus comes back. This is good discipleship. People who talk constantly of, quote, going to heaven do not sound at all like Jesus. We've also pointed out that the good news about the kingdom has its roots in the prophecies of the Old Testament. These announced the coming of a golden age on earth. Following a decisive, catastrophic intervention by God called the Day of the Lord, or, quote, the Great and Terrible Day of the Lord, God's intention is to establish a just government throughout the world under the supervision of his chosen agent, the Messiah or Christ. See, for example, and particularly, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel chapter 7, verses 18, 22, and 27. In lesson 1, we quoted at length from experts on the theology of the Bible who agree that the kingdom message was the heart and soul of all that Jesus came to preach and teach. This cardinal fact may be grasped by any reader of the New Testament, particularly in view of Jesus' all-embracing purpose statement, I quote, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also. That is the reason for which I was sent. Luke 4 verse 43. In contrast to the unmistakable prominence given in the Bible to the kingdom of God, we noticed the remarkable silence on the subject of the gospel of the kingdom on the part of the churches calling themselves Christian. According to their leading spokesman, past and present, the kingdom of God has never held a central position in their gospel message or in their creeds. Their writings and tracts dealing with evangelism continue to say little or nothing about the kingdom. We're amazed at this fact, as they also appear to be. The situation seems to call for an urgent revision and correction of what is called evangelism. It calls for a re-examination of the biblical documents in order to determine what we are supposed to believe as Christians. On this, the most critical of subjects, the gospel message. The gospel is the divine message for our salvation. We must understand it properly. Christianity is a response to the gospel preaching of Jesus and thus obedience to Jesus as Lord Messiah, as he's called in Luke chapter 2 verse 11. Our suspicion is that following apostolic times, the original faith became submerged under a deluge of alien ideas introduced mainly by Gentiles who had little understanding of the Old Testament roots of Jesus' announcement about the kingdom. Gradually, 
the concept of the kingdom lost its meaning as a real government to be brought to power on earth in the future and it became quote a kingdom in the heart a religious ideal often the creation of man's own aspirations and dreams in this way the dynamic proclamation of a coming crisis in world history was largely replaced by a more quote comfortable gospel claiming to deal with quote personal salvation or social improvement some of the essential facts of the message proclaimed by the apostles were retained the death burial and resurrection of jesus nevertheless the primary factor in the gospel the necessity of understanding and believing in the coming kingdom mark chapter 1 verses 1 14 and 15 acts 8 verse 12 acts 28 verses 23 and 31 these facts about the coming kingdom were dropped vague promises of quote heaven at death replaced the promise of the golden age of the kingdom of god on earth to be introduced by the return of jesus this depleted abbreviated and distorted version of the gospel has become popular because one the old testament roots of the gospel about the kingdom are ignored two the unambiguous testimony of matthew mark and luke to what jesus preached as the gospel is disregarded luther and calvin and in our time c.s lewis and evangelists generally are responsible for the failure to preach the gospel firstly from the gospel words of jesus number three the plain statements in acts about the church's continued proclamation of the kingdom of god as the heart of the gospel are bypassed acts 8 verse 12 acts 19 verse 8 acts 20 verse 25 and acts 28 verses 23 and 31. number four an anti-jewish tendency has caused the gospel of jesus to seem too quote jewish and messianic the christian documents demonstrate beyond any argument that jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of god not only this he did not initially say anything about his own death and resurrection see luke 18 verses 31 to 34 this must prove conclusively that the message about the kingdom contains information other than the death and resurrection of the savior this point is so crucial to our whole argument that we must emphasize it further jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in the company of the twelve apostles i quote now after this he made his way through towns and villages preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of god with him went the twelve that's in luke chapter 8 verse 1. later jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of god and to heal 
That's in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. At this stage, the disciples had no knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is proved by their subsequent reaction to Jesus' announcement of his impending arrest and crucifixion. I quote, Then taking the twelve aside, he said to them, Now we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything which is written by the prophets about the Son of Man is to come true, for he will be handed over to the pagans and will be mocked, maltreated, and spat upon. And when they have scourged him, they will put him to death, and on the third day he will rise again. But they could make nothing of this. What he had said was quite obscure to them. They had no idea what it meant. That's in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. Even immediately after the resurrection, the disciples still did not understand it. And yet they had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom in the company of Jesus. I quote, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's in John 20 verse 9. This was after the death and resurrection of Jesus had occurred. Now if, as is commonly said, the gospel consists of information about the death and resurrection of Jesus only, how is it that both Jesus and the twelve proclaimed the gospel without reference to the Saviour's death and resurrection? The answer is clear. The gospel of the kingdom was announced before Jesus died. See Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew 9, verse 35, Luke 4, verse 43, Luke 8, verse 1, and so on. And, as the book of Acts informs us, after the resurrection, Acts 1, 3, Acts 1, 6, Acts 8, verse 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. In Acts, however, we find added to the gospel about the kingdom the new facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus, which had now become history. The result is a gospel message about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8.12, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. The kingdom message remains as the primary component of the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection are additional, indispensable subjects for belief. More Hebrew background. A modern commentator remarks that the kingdom of God, quote, for Jesus' first hearers, was not the empty or nebulous term it often is today. The concept had a long history and an extensive background in the Old Testament. That's a quotation from Hugh Anderson in the New Century Bible on the Gospel of Mark. Since the kingdom is the main subject of the gospel of salvation, it must follow that the Christian gospel itself has become, quote, 
an empty or nebulous thing for modern audiences. Hence the urgent need to define the heart of the gospel from its Old Testament heritage and from the words of Jesus. There can obviously be no faith response to Jesus' initial call for repentance and belief in the kingdom, Mark 1, 14 and 15, as long as the kingdom remains a nebulous idea. Faith must have an object, and that object is the message of the kingdom as well as Jesus himself. You cannot fairly separate Jesus from his message. That's why Jesus says, and I quote, whoever loses his life for me and the gospel, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in Mark 8 verse 35 and verse 38, and the gospel was and is always the gospel of the kingdom of God. The nation of Israel had long been convinced of its high destiny in the purposes of God. As part of the covenant between the nation and its God, Israel was to enjoy a position of special privilege. I quote, If you obey my voice and hold fast to my covenant, you of all the nations will be my very own, for all the earth is mine. I will count you a kingdom of priests, a consecrated nation. These are the words you are to speak to the sons of Israel. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Israel as a whole had repeatedly failed to live up to her high calling. Nevertheless, the promise of world supremacy was reserved for a faithful remnant destined to inherit the future kingdom of God. The invitation to kingship was repeated through the prophet Isaiah. I quote, Pay attention, come to me, listen, and your soul will live. With you I will make an everlasting covenant out of the favors promised to David. See, I've made of you a witness to the peoples, a leader and a master of the nations. See, you will summon a nation who never knew you. Those unknown will come hurrying to you for the sake of Yahweh, your God, of the Holy One of Israel, who will glorify you. That's in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 3 to 5, as translated in the Jerusalem Bible. In the New Testament, the prospect of royal position in the kingdom is offered to the new Israel of the church. Galatians 6, verse 16, and Philippians 3, verse 3, gathered from both Jews and Gentiles. We have already referred to Jesus' own assurance to the faithful church. I quote, Those who prove victorious, I will allow to share my throne. Just as I was victorious myself and took my place with my father on his throne, to those who prove victorious, and keep working for me until the end, I will give the authority over the pagans which I myself have been given by my Father to rule them 
with an iron scepter and shatter them like earthenware. That's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Revelation 2, verse 26 and 27. This prospect gave rise to the Christian slogan, so to speak, found in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we suffer with him, we will also reign as kings with him. The faithful of all the ages and of all nations are destined to, quote, rule as kings on the earth. That's in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. That is their royal future, and they must prepare now for this very high honor. In Revelation 2, verse 26, which we just quoted, Jesus is quoting the celebrated messianic Psalm 2, one of many which describe the glories of the future kingdom of God. It will be initiated by a decisive intervention by God, sending his Messiah to crush political rebellion and establish a new government in Jerusalem. The fact that appeal is made to this psalm in the book of Revelation shows that the traditional messianic hope was taken over into Christianity with full approval of Jesus himself. I quote, Why this uproar among the nations? Why this impotent muttering of pagans, kings on earth rising in revolt, princes plotting against Yahweh and his anointed, or Messiah? Now let us break their fetters. Now let us throw off their yoke. The one whose throne is in heaven sits laughing. Yahweh derides them. Then angrily he addresses them. In a rage he strikes them with panic. This is my king, installed by me on Zion, my holy mountain. Let me proclaim Yahweh's decree. He has told me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask and I will give the nations for your heritage, the ends of the earth for your domain. With iron scepter you will break them, shatter them like potter's ware. This was cited by Jesus in Revelation 2 verse 26. So now, you kings, learn wisdom. Earthly rulers, be warned. Serve Yahweh, fear him, tremble and kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish, for his anger is very quick to blaze. Happy all who take shelter in him. That's from Psalm 2, translated in the Jerusalem Bible. The promise of, quote, the ends of the earth for your domain is reflected in Jesus' own claim to be the authority which I myself have been given by my Father. Those are the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, verse 26. The same theme is taken up by the angelic chorus when they sing of the faithful who, and I quote, will rule as kings on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. And in the famous millennial passage, which foresees the saints ruling with the Messiah for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. The kingdom of the saints 
belongs to the future age of the millennial rule of Christ. Jesus referred to that era as, quote, that famous age, Luke 20, verse 35. It is the age of the future kingdom of God on a renewed earth, and it's entered by those who have responded now to the gospel of the kingdom. And they've been baptized in water in obedience to Acts 2, verse 38, and Acts 8, verse 12, and so on. And they continue in faith until Jesus returns. If they fall asleep in death before Jesus returns, Jesus will resurrect them to take part in the kingdom. See Daniel 12, verse 2 and verse 13, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, and so on. The loss of the messianic element in the gospel. The attempts of commentators to avoid this messianic material are a monument to man's effort to construct his own, quote, demessianized versions of Christianity. The crux of the problem is that man does not want God to impose his rule on the earth. Much less does he like to think of Jesus shattering the nations and ruling them with a rod of iron. The original messianic version of Christianity preached and taught by Jesus and the apostles has therefore been dismantled. Its messianic framework has been removed. What remains as, quote, Christianity is barely recognizable as the faith of the New Testament. The name of Jesus has been attached to a system of religion markedly different from the original faith. Promises of an ethereal, quote, heaven are a far cry from Jesus' constant invitation to men and women to seek the kingdom of God and, quote, inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. The New Testament has as its supreme goal the establishment by divine intervention of world peace under the government of the coming Messiah. The so-called revised version of the faith promises a salvation for the individual in a realm far removed from the earth. Jesus, however, offered his followers positions of responsibility in a future new world order, the kingdom of God. Belief in that new world order was and is the first step in intelligent faith in the gospel. Quote, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. That's in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. The loss of Christianity's central point may be likened to a team hoping to go to the moon. They decide that they need a launching pad and a spaceship in order to realize their dream. After they've acquired the necessary equipment for the journey, they forget what it was they needed the equipment for. Their interest in the pad and the spacecraft remains but the trip to the moon is forgotten. Churchgoers have likewise almost no idea 
of their future and destiny. This leads to an impoverishment of the faith and disconnects them from the words of Jesus and the Bible. In New Testament Christianity, the hope of a place in the future kingdom of God provides the stimulus to the whole Christian venture. The death and resurrection of Jesus make possible the believer's hope for a place in that kingdom. Grasping the nature of that hope is the first step to be taken by the disciple. Belief in Jesus provides the way to the goal and guarantees its ultimate realization. In contemporary presentations of the so-called gospel, people are being asked to, quote, believe in Jesus, quote, give their heart to Jesus, or, quote, ask Jesus into their lives, and so on. But there's no clear idea of what Jesus stands for. Audiences are not exposed to Jesus' message about the kingdom, which he preached long before he spoke of his death and resurrection. The situation is comparable to a political campaign in which a candidate appeals for support before voters know what his manifesto is. It's impossible to express intelligent faith in Jesus unless one understands what Jesus meant by his news or good news about the kingdom, that is, the gospel. This will explain why Luke, in Acts, so precisely summarizes the process by which converts are to be initiated into the faith. I quote, When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. That's in Acts 8, verse 12. The challenge is to believe in the good news about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And this remained at the heart of Christian preaching after the resurrection of Jesus. It is urgently needed today as the indispensable guide to evangelism according to the apostolic method. How can we relate to Jesus without understanding his own passion for the kingdom of God? When Jesus said that he was commissioned to proclaim the kingdom of God, as in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he set an example for all believers. Can we say that we are also sent to proclaim the kingdom of God? We should be able to follow Jesus confidently in this respect. In the Bible, people did not just, quote, receive the Lord. They received the message of Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 8, Acts 8, 12, and so on. Receiving Jesus in the Bible means believing in his name, John 1, verse 12. Jesus' name means the gospel revelation which he brought for our salvation. There's no believing in Jesus without believing in Jesus' words. We must not only believe in Jesus, we must believe what Jesus believed. See John chapter 5, verse 47. Christianity means having, quote, the faith of Jesus as well as faith in him.
Jesus himself gave a final warning in John chapter 12, verse 48. I quote, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who will judge him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. If rejecting Jesus means, quote, not receiving his sayings, obviously accepting Jesus means accepting his sayings. But where would you find this simple information in contemporary tracts offering, quote, salvation? More on the gospel of the kingdom in the prophets. A large proportion of the message of the prophets is devoted to descriptions of the coming kingdom of God. There's not the slightest doubt as to the meaning of these glowing accounts of the Messiah's future worldwide empire. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 from the Revised Standard Version. The appointed ruler will be characterized by, quote, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, the Revised Standard Version. With him, quote, princes will rule in justice. Isaiah 32, verse 1. The consequences of the Messiah's perfect government will be seen in nature itself. I quote, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad, the desert will rejoice and blossom, like the crocus it will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame man leap like a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, the language of the gospel is closely associated with a time in the future when, quote, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. A verse earlier we read of one, quote, evangelizing Zion and bringing the gospel to Jerusalem. That's in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. 
The association of the two ideas of gospel and rule leads naturally to the concept of the New Testament, quote, gospel of the kingdom of God. Whenever the biblical text speaks of God becoming king, the Jewish commentaries translate the Hebrew verb rule by a noun, quote, the kingdom of God will be revealed. That's found in the Jewish Targum, that's to say commentary, on Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. So also in Exodus 15, verse 18, I quote, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And this means, according to the Targum, that the kingdom of the Lord endures forever and ever. The Old Testament roots of the kingdom of God must always be taken into account when we confront the kingdom in the gospel message of Jesus. Uprooted from its Hebrew background, the kingdom is indeed a vague term in the minds of many Bible readers. There's a grave risk of placing a meaning on this central gospel term which will not be the meaning attached to it by Jesus and the apostles. The result will inevitably be a loss of vital saving information. Exactly the same connection between the gospel and the kingdom is found in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. I quote, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The context speaks of a public manifestation of the Lord. I quote, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That's in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10. This refers to the second coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth. These critically important passages, along with the description of the kingdom of God replacing the empires of the world in Daniel 2, verse 44, convey a clear picture of the kingdom as a coming reign or government of God on earth to be introduced by a supernatural intervention. It is belief in this stupendous event which Jesus demands with his summons to, quote, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. By so doing, we affirm our faith in what God has promised to do. This is the essence of faith and hope. We align ourselves with God's plan by believing in what God is working out on earth through Jesus. To add to our picture of the kingdom, we quote further from Isaiah's vision of the bright future. I quote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more will be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more will there be in it an infant 
that lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the child will die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree will the days of my people be, and my chosen will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they will be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their children with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25 in the Revised Standard Version. The Gospel of the Kingdom. Throughout the ministry of the apostles, the essential message of salvation is, quote, the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8 verse 12. The same message may appear under different names as, quote, the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace or the gospel of peace. Statistically, by far the most frequent designation of the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. As can be seen from the following survey, it should never be forgotten that the message proclaimed by Jesus himself, the Twelve and the Seventy, before the crucifixion, centered on the kingdom of God. However, the same message of the kingdom continued to form the heart of the proclamation after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The evidence from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts leaves no room for doubt about the content of the Christian gospel. Matthew 4, verse 17, I quote, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist issued the same challenge to repentance and belief in the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 then Matthew 4 verse 23 I quote and he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people Matthew 9 verse 35 and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
This information demonstrates beyond dispute that the substance of the gospel message was and is the kingdom of God. It is the same gospel of the kingdom which remains the saving message until the end of the age. Matthew 24 verse 14. Mark's gospel contains 14 occurrences of the term kingdom of God. Like Matthew, Mark understands the gospel of the kingdom to be the essential saving message. I quote, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Christianity, as taught by Jesus, begins with belief in the gospel message about the kingdom. Spreading the gospel meant an extensive proclamation of the good news about the kingdom. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may make my proclamation, for that is what I was commissioned for. Mark chapter 1 verse 38. Luke makes it unmistakably clear that the good news concerns the kingdom of God. Fourteen times in Luke 4 verse 43, Luke 8 verse 1, Luke 9 verse 2, 11 and 60, Luke 10 verse 9 and 11, Luke 16 verse 16, and Acts 1 verse 3, chapter 8 verse 12, chapter 19 verse 8, chapter 20, verse 25, and chapter 28, verses 23 and 31, cited below. Jesus defines the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 4, verse 43, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason I was sent. Luke 8, verse 1, soon afterwards he went on, through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 11, He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 60, As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 10, verse 9 and 11, Say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Luke 16, verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Perhaps better translated, Everyone is solemnly urged to enter it. Acts 1 verse 3, he spoke to them of the kingdom of God for 40 days. Acts 8 verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the gospel about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were being baptized, both men and women. Acts 19 verse 8, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, arguing and pleading about the kingdom of God.
Acts 20 verse 25, I know that all of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face no more. Acts 28 verse 23, And he expounded the matter to them from morning to evening, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Acts 28 verses 30 and 31, and he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ quite openly and unhindered. In Acts 20 verse 24, Paul summarizes his ministry to the Ephesians as testifying, quote, to the gospel of the grace of God. This he immediately identifies with, quote, preaching about the kingdom of God, Acts 20, verse 25. As a recent study of Luke's understanding of the kingdom rightly states, preaching about the kingdom sums up the ministry of Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, and Paul. That's a statement by Robert O'Toole in The Kingdom of God in 20th Century Interpretation. The same author says that, quote, the kingdom message can be summarized in the phrase kingdom of God. However, to judge by hundreds of tracts and religious books offering, quote, the gospel, one would never think that the kingdom of God was the heart of the message or even part of it at all. The phrases kingdom of God and gospel of the kingdom are almost entirely missing. A suppression of information. There's a marked absence of the phrase kingdom of God in places where we would most expect it to be found. A prominent leader of the ecumenical movement who served as Associate General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, remarks as follows. The kingdom of God was the central theme of the preaching of Jesus as we find it in the New Testament. And yet it cannot be said that it has been the central theme in the great classical traditions of Christendom. It is not mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says of Christ that, quote, his kingdom will have no end, but does not use the phrase kingdom of God. The main traditions stemming from the Reformation have spoken of, quote, preaching the gospel or, quote, preaching Christ, but seldom of, quote, preaching the kingdom. That's from Leslie Newbegin's book, sign of the kingdom. A recent tract issued by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association bears this title, What is the Gospel? The writer then steers clear of the phrase gospel of the kingdom, but tells us that the gospel is, quote, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our salvation, and the gospel of peace. Mention is made also of the phrase gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20 verse 24. But amazingly, 
the instructive explanatory phrase which occurs in the very next verse, Acts 20 verse 25, is entirely omitted. Paul here defines the gospel of the grace of God as the proclamation of the kingdom. The International Standard Bible Dictionary discusses the term gospel and explains that the term refers to the message which Christ and his apostles announced. It then points out that, and I quote, in some places it's called the gospel of God, Mark 1, 14, Romans 1, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 and 9, 1 Timothy 1, verse 11. In others, it's called, quote, the gospel of Christ, Mark 1, verse 1, Romans 1, 16, Romans 15, verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12 and 18, Galatians 1, verse 7. In another, it's called the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, verse 24. In another, the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, verse 15. The gospel of your salvation, in Ephesians 1, 13. And yet another, the glorious gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, as translated by the authorized version. Despite the fact that the gospel is directly connected to the term kingdom, as the good news of the kingdom of God in some 20 places, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the dictionary admits entirely to tell us of the phrase gospel of the kingdom. This is extraordinary, an extraordinary silence about the kingdom of God and its characteristic of so much that is known as Christian writing. See also our lesson one in this book. Before proceeding with our examination of the kingdom of God and the prophets, in lesson four, we complete our analysis of the content of the gospel as preached by the apostolic church in Acts. In Acts 8, Luke uses several parallel phrases to describe the evangelistic activity of the church. They were, quote, preaching the message as good news, literally, quote, evangelizing the word in Acts 8, verse 4. Philip then proclaimed the Christ to them, verse 5. Samaria thus, quote, received the message of God, in verse 14. After, quote, they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans in Acts 8, verse 25. At the center of this account, however, Luke provides the most comprehensive description of the content of the saving message. With a carefully worked formula, he lets us know exactly what proclaiming the Christ or proclaiming the message or preaching the gospel mean. It is, and I quote, preaching the gospel of, in the Greek preposition is peri, preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That's in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. This is Luke's fullest summary 
of the Gospel. He repeats it at two other critically important points in his narrative, found in Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. It defines his other, quote, shorthand statements and ought to serve as a rallying point for all proclamations of the Gospel. Quite extraordinarily, these texts receive almost no mention in literature defining the Gospel. If they were taken seriously, current, quote, Gospels would be exposed as defective. Another important fact would emerge. The Apostles were no less insistent upon the Kingdom of God as the center of their message than Jesus had been. They were following their master faithfully. But can the same be said of evangelism today? Without an understanding of the phrase gospel of the kingdom, there can be no intelligent response to Jesus' first command. We are required to, quote, repent and believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. All subsequent preaching in the New Testament should be referred to this basic thesis statement about the gospel of salvation. Cut loose from Jesus' appeal for belief in the gospel of the kingdom, preaching exposes itself to the menace of a distorted and thus, quote, another gospel. That such a distortion has occurred will not be hard to see. One has only to listen to preachers of, quote, the gospel to recognize that whatever else they may preach, it is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. This can only mean that the principal element of Jesus' proclamation has been silenced. Such a so-called muzzling of the Savior in the name of the Savior remains the baffling and disturbing feature of contemporary preaching. The kingdom of God, and I'm quoting here, is the central point in Christ's teaching. The fundamental teachings of Jesus naturally group themselves around this central theme. That's from the Dictionary of Christ and the Apostles, Volume 1.